0: Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. Alphalist is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Bechtle. Bechtle opens its IT online shop to all B2B customers. Small and medium-sized enterprises as well as self-employed people benefit from Bechtle's entire experience and can conveniently procure their IT online. They offer total IT procurement in one place, and that saves time and money, special functionality for business customers, employee management with budget limits or approval processes directly on the platform best prices for all brands and fast delivery if you want to try it out simply go to bechtle.digital and use the coupon code alphalist on your first order to save some money Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. Uh, I am your host Toby, and today my guest is Shagnik Nandi. And Shagnik is the CTO of Okta. Okta has a market cap of almost forty billion. He they they recently acquired Auth0, and before that, um, Shagnik spent I think fifteen years at Google. Um, and like recently, you were leading the as a VP engineering, you were leading some of the most important business lines at Google so I'm pretty keen to hear about that as well and today we're we're talking about identity management your your path as an engineer um and as a as a nerd and maybe maybe that is also good good to start with so Shagnik maybe you 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 want to add something um and tell us how you actually uh ended where you are I mean how did you get into engineering how how is your your nerd path
1: now, uh, f- first of all, uh, Tobias, thank you for having me uh, be a part of this. Very, very excited. Uh, let's see my nerd path. I came to the United States for my uh, PhD, and my uh, PhD is in distributed computing. And then straight out of school, I joined Google. Uh, they had just acquired a company called Urchin, which went on to become Google Analytics. So I, I joined that team. As someone straight out of college excited about large-scale systems, it, it was uh, a dream playground almost. Like I got to work on some of the biggest and very, very interesting data problems, like some of the things that are very commonplace in large-scale computing and especially data analysis right now. We almost faced the problems and came up with our own solutions many, many years back for many of those things. So For example... We were one of the early teams to kind of figure out that, you know, with the classic MapReduce Hadoop-like model, you need other forms of stream processing, et cetera. So a lot lot of things uh, we got to both face problems at a different scale and solve for them, which was uh, amazingly fun. Went on to manage uh, uh, tech lead, then managed the end side of analytics to eventually managing problems. Uh, the whole, uh, engineering of the whole product, uh, that became very, very successful, uh, for a bunch of reasons. I can't take credit for all of it, but it was great to be a part of that, uh, went on to then make an enterprise version of that offering, uh, which was again, uh, very successful. Then we built an entire suite of marketing analytics and measurement, uh, offerings around it. So what started off as one, uh, simple, not in terms of system, but simple in terms of product offering, uh, eventually when I left that team, uh, like close to eight or 10 SKUs, depending on how you look at it. But as as an engineer, like really enjoyed like learning and getting to do and leading all aspects of large scale system, product engineering, uh, how do you build systems that have to be extremely resilient, uh, data analytics. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, then... Well, the reason I moved is like I'm someone who always like if I feel too comfortable, I I feel like it's time to do something different. Like I remember telling my then boss that I'm increasingly doing what I'm doing with less effort, and people around me are okay with it, and I I need to shake myself up. So I I moved over to the ad side in ads. Over the years, I I did two different sets of things. I, I spent some years in the network advertising side of things which uh, is basically Google ads showing on non-Google properties. And then my last few years, I was on the core search ads side of things, leading a lot of their quality efforts, infrastructure, monetizing new offerings, their bidding, targeting, um, all sorts of So, uh, And each of my moves kind of happened because I, I felt I was starting to get a little bit in cruise control mode in terms of, how I was evolving, how I was learning. Uh, and in recent time, I also felt that you know, 15 years in one place, Google's been amazing. Google's been an, a great learning experience, but it was time to try and do something different. I was starting to feel the same level of comfort in Google. And again, Google's amazing, but I felt like I needed to shake things up for myself. Uh, the, the thing I used to joke is I was in Google for 15 years, that's longer than I've been married, and almost definitely I spent more awake hours with Google than with my wife. That, that is not a good combination. Uh, so uh, very, very excited to join Okta. Um, Like you know, I, I researched a lot, and like Okta as an opportunity really excited me, but it's been three months in Okta and it's everything I thought it will be, and more. so uh, I'm very excited. I'm still pretty new. To the area and the company, but I'm having a lot of fun, learning a lot, and hopefully having some impact as well. So very excited.
0: So um, let's let's start at the beginning before we go to the why uh, behind behind Okta and so on. Like uh, your your decision to join Okta, um, I'd I'd be curious. So you actually. One of the inventors of the concepts behind Hadoop. Is that then correct?
1: No, that that would be like Hadoop as a concept, MapReduce as a concept existed. Uh, When we started doing Google Analytics, the product became so successful that the kind of scale we were dealing with was even by very large scale systems standards uh, quite unique and quite ahead of the curve in many ways. Uh, so we essentially had to evolve like classic solutions and kind of almost jumpstart new solutions. So for example, like now streaming analytics, streaming processing is quite commonplace. Again, still lots of interesting problems out there. But we we faced problems around that. We faced problems around like what happens when you have a largely batch processing model, which is what original MapReduce Often then again, like for the problem space at that time, I think that was, uh, again, great. It's just that one of the things that analytics allowed me to experience is face problems at scale, almost a little ahead of when it became a lot of people's problems. So we got to build or deal with problems and solutions a little ahead of the curve, which is always fun because you kind of get to experience the problem with somewhat unbiased view uh, before the industry has like gravitated one way or the other. So that
0: was a lot of fun. Interesting, I can imagine. And um, were you already part of it when when Google Analytics was acquired? So initially it was called Urchin, right? And uh, it was like developed by some startup and then acquired by Google. Um, were you already part of that? No,
1: so the the startup was called Urchin and I joined after its acquisition.
0: Like after the acquisition, was it like, I mean, was it, I guess there was like the need to urgently scale it up like crazy, right? Or was it already made to scale? Was it prepared to scale?
1: So it was a very different uh, kind of business. So uh, pre-acquisition again, Now, I, I think the core was still the same, but pre-acquisition, I think a lot of the urgent software uh, focused on working with servers uh, or like ISP, like it was uh, often a server-side solution, not always, but often. Whereas Google kind of took a SaaS path and said, "So that, that was one big shift." Uh, the other was Google kind of said, "Hey, free analytics for everyone!" Like uh, we, we were a big believer in giving people data, giving democratizing data and analytics will just up-level the way people do analytics, the way people do marketing, the, pe- the way people run their businesses, giving free uh, access to data and powerful insights uh, was a great idea uh, for many of us. So you can imagine the scale of like saying, hey, this is now available to everyone free. That was a very, very different kind of scale as well. So we had to both uh, kind of make it a SaaS first, a SaaS only solution uh, for many people, as well as like the scaling was very different, and once that became very widely accepted, uh, we were like, "Okay, people are really enjoying getting access to data easily and analysis easily. Uh, how how do we make them uh, even better analysts? Uh, make them enjoy data a lot more?" So we built a lot of analysis tooling. Uh, in many ways, like I personally always believe that if you make it simple to deal with data, a lot more people will deal with data. And I I think that combination of scaling so that a lot of people can do it and simplifying, like and and that's been a common thing I've really enjoyed throughout my career so far is can you solve very complex problems but make the solutions easy?
0: And I I, I think you succeeded there, right? I mean, uh, like first, through the adoption of analytics, which was crazy back then, um, as far as I remember personally. I remember me having like installing an Urchin node or something on my on my Linux server, <laughs> nice. and and then like suddenly that, that thing was free and it was in the cloud, and you you were just using like a JavaScript beacon or an image tag in, instead of um, instead of log files, and that was like a crazy mind shift. Exactly.
1: So and that was like I really enjoyed that whole process. Like it was such a great way of learning and kind of influencing software design, system design, product design. Like if you look at analytics, like the the goal for us always was how do we make it simple, easy to use, like shield the user from the complexity. And and that's something I've taken to heart. And like I always, like if you can solve very complex problems, but don't expose the complexity to your end user, that's a very powerful combination.
0: Yeah, it interesting that just recently like history is repeating through like you you see like server-to-server integrations again, like which is in a way like a step back to 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 log streaming, right? And and to to event-based, like purely event-based tracking. Um I mean analytics has always been event-based in a way, right? Um and, and then also again like small revolutions in the market that there are like also alternatives that uh, somehow are are becoming more and more successful that are maybe self-hosted and so on. But that's like, in a way related to GDPR and so on, right? There's a whole bunch of things happening. Like in, in general, the curve, a lot of these things,
1: uh, and I'm generalizing a little bit, not specific to a product or like in a lot of these spaces, the, initially things are very complex. So a lot of the initial adoption sometimes happens through complex solutions, which are still better than like people doing it themselves. Then there is a focus on simplifying it. So you have the complexity, but you shield the user from it. And that becomes that much more powerful and a lot more people start using it. As more people use it, they, you then start having tiered group of users. Where some users are like, a lot more users are using it, but as they use it, their appetite grows. So they're like, okay, I want more complex things. But then it's important to not go back that complexity curve. Like, So then there's an interesting pattern you see in many of these offerings which take this path is adaptive complexity. Like, Can you keep the basic product as simple as possible and up-level the, uh, how advanced it is while keeping it simple? But then starting giving more knobs to your customers, to your users, that if there is appetite for doing more advanced things. So I I think a lot of current solutions, when I see in this space, what they do is they allow some kind of very seamless tag-based integration, but they also provide additional hooks. So, yes, if you have your logs or if you want to do things server to server or, you know, as you get into a lot of modern devices, Uh, there might be even constraints around like, can you run JavaScript? Can you run like some of these things? So there you need server-to-server pings to even like be able to do certain things. Uh, But again, the need for that arises, but not for everyone. So a lot of the solutions take this adaptive path that they have something which probably serves 60, 70, 80% of the use cases very, very simply without making it onerous, but then also that 20% becomes 25 30 over time and you want to provide solutions for those so th- th- that's an interesting thing to see.
0: on a on a um, on a on a um, let's say meter level you could also compare it i mean you you in a way building like complex products and more complex products and more complex products and you're always building something on top and at a certain time you try to distill things out right um, and you try to put it into separate add-ons and optional um Optional things for really the power users. It totally reminds me of uh, like programming languages or frameworks, like how they are evolving in the last years, right? So I'm like an early days Ruby on Rails uh, guy, and I kind of remember the time when it get it became more and more popular. It it became more and more complex, and they st- started building more and more on top, and it was bloated. And then at a certain time, there was like a like somehow a bang when um, everything shrunk again into like an absolute simple solution and people only wanted to, to use that simple solution and everything else in add-ons, right? It's, it's somehow how the world goes in waves, right? And complexity waves, the software world.
1: Uh, exactly. And what's interesting is, and, and this is something I have learned over the years, is at any given time when you're building something and you think like this will solve it all, it never solves it all. So like... Building systems, keeping in mind that this will someday get replaced, is an increasingly important thing, I feel. Like, uh, if if you look at traditional software development, like every time a big migration happens, everyone's like, oh, this is so complex, and like migrations are hard. Like, imagine a company moving from like on premise to cloud. Like, migrations are hard. However, a lot of people at the time of a migration, at the time of a new system, they assume well, now we've solved all problems. So the new solution will never need to get migrated away from. So people, like, while facing the challenges of migration, deployment, a new system, we get that someday they will be that old system. So one of the things, like, uh, again, one of the nice things about getting to work on these very large systems over the years is you do a bunch of these migrations. And I think it's very important to build systems keeping in mind that someday it'll not be the right system.
0: Then you design systems very differently. You essentially build throw away software or?
1: (laughs) No, so you you build hoping you don't have to throw away, but the reality is everything like new things will happen all the time. Uh, Like a, a good, more concrete example will be APIs. Like everyone, when they create a new API or expose a new API, at that point they are like oh okay you talk about all the challenges of the old apis and then you deal with the pains of migrating to the new api which is great but then you don't think of like okay someday someone will have to move away from this api so how can i design my api in such a way that it's eventually if this is to be replaced it makes that replacement that much easier and like this gets harder and harder as it goes lower down the stack like when you get Closer to things like storage, like sometimes your formats are so intrinsically attached to higher layers. So I think building software, keeping in mind trends like it will eventually get replaced, or it'll eventually need to work in conjunction with other things, as opposed to the whole system as you look at it right now, are I think like I I had an early a uh, mentor of mine who said, build for, build for deprecation. I, I took that, like I, it resonated a lot with me, like, like add deprecation support as a first class thing in your system. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, we got into this conversation for complexity. I think the same thing holds true for complexity that as you design system, like to be able to do it in such a way that it's easy to add on components, like front-end UI design, like do you go with a tabular view? Like to keep in mind that someday you'll probably have users who will use very different parts of your product. Like it's very possible that someone will use 20% of your product and not the other 80% and someone else will do the same thing, but those two 20% won't be the same 20%. How do you then evolve a UI in that paradigm that the remaining 80% doesn't hold back this user's 20% use cases. At the same time, different users will have potentially different 20% use cases. And for them to not feel like second-class users of the product. When you think of UI development, product development that way, again, you think of it very differently.
0: How do you approach that? I mean, I guess you measure it all, right? Uh, whenever someone clicks somewhere, you, you just measure it. Um, but how do you build a, a, a an adaptive system at the end is there is there a formula or do you just build for the 80% or the 90% or where do you where do you do, do the cut then
1: so uh, there are multiple ways of approaching it uh, i i think it's important to not i, I think some folks over optimize or complicate what they think the future will look like from the beginning and that has its own pitfalls uh an approach to take is you build for your current use cases and do a stellar job. But keep in mind that these might not be the only use cases or the dominant use cases, let's say sometime in the future. So you build for the common use cases, but again, if you build for whether it's deprecation or build for expansion, in this case, expansion would be a better paradigm in mind. uh, Then you as things evolve, you can add on more easily. Like a a, conc- a concrete example would be, let's say you have a product with uh, dashboarding I think, uh, or you have an analysis product. So some products take the approach that, oh, every user will have a different set of requirements. So you don't give basic reports. You don't give basic dashboarding. What you do is build a tooling where anyone can Create their own reports, and it, it starts from the point of view that you know every user wants a slightly different set of reports. But when you take that approach, you're also expecting every user coming in to kind of like first ask themselves that question: that what are the reports I need? Uh, you're making like the barrier to entry you're increasing it for flexibility. If you do some amount of market research, and again, oh, one formula fits everything, but I'm giving an example. You can probably come up with like 15 reports, which will serve like your current user base very well. And then as that group starts growing, you probably realize that those 15 reports are not enough. You'll need to add five more. You add five more to the product, but when that becomes 30, having a product where someone has to go through 30 reports where they might care only about 10 is not an ideal experience. So if you keep that in mind and build from the beginning that, hey, maybe I will have a tabular architecture where I give you one default tab to start with, but you can configure that tab and you can add more tabs. And then you can like create tabs that you can share only those tabs with those reports with others who can then extend it. Keeping that in mind gives you the flexibility that you might not know what the next set of 10 reports will be but you know you can add the next 10 reports in another tab without over populating the first one. And even in the first one, you say, you know, I'm giving you these 10, but you can customize these a little bit. Uh, What that allows is like for, let's say 70% of your users, they are happy with their one tab and that's all. You'll have 10% of users who are like, I love this tab, but I wish I could do things a little differently because you're giving them the option to customize the tab A small pool of people will use it, but things are now better for them. And then over time, there'll be people who are like, you know, this is not what I want. I want some very different things. I want this, but a very different set of additional things. And there are days when I'm looking at customer acquisition, and then there are days where I'm looking at customer performance. And those are very different disciplines. So by thinking in advance of a tabular architecture or like, you know, whether you have widgets, a, a widget framework that allows you to drag and drop, et cetera. You can think in advance and be extensible without paying that upfront cost uh, or or creating a large barrier to entry.
0: Okay. So you would typically do that upfront these days. um you 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 spoke a lot about um, like uh, customers wanting something or not wanting something. What do you think about the idea of product discovery? um and and how do you live that in your daily life? I mean, how much do you talk to your customers and at what state um would you are you rather like a delivery person or um and do you start delivering immediately and start building something immediately or would you say that, that there's like a it's a good idea to do quantitative and qualitative uh, qualitative testing potentially
1: I, again, I've seen different teams and different people have very different approaches and all succeed. I personally really enjoy talking to customers. I, I feel it's very important like for me, it's very important that there should be a pool of people who would absolutely love what you're building. Again, this is me speaking personally, and it's important to hear from them because a lot of times you might best guess, like if you build something. That is the 80% preferred choice of a lot of people. That's very different from if you build something, which is the 125% preference of a smaller group of people. And again, no approach is right or wrong. And you want things to expand. but I find it very, I've seen cases where people guessed that people will use things a certain way. And a whole bunch of people ended up using it like that, but not exactly like that. And that was non-ideal. So I, I personally always feel like having a point of view is good, but also talking to customers to validate that is great. And it's also important to do this on an ongoing basis because user trends, user assumptions, everything changes. Uh, like we were discussing, like trends, you see waves, like today's right might be tomorrow's like terrible. Uh today's great can be tomorrow's obsolete. So it's very, very important. I've seen this multiple times that your your users evolve, new use your user mix evolves. You know your product might be expanding to areas which are very, very different uh, behaviorally, from the needs of the users, and you have to always stay in touch and there are multiple. I, I've seen people who have amazing gut abilities where they can guess. I've seen people who can predict what users will eventually want. So I think there is no one fixed size. I personally like to have, like, it's important to have a point of view. Sometimes if you only talk to users, you hear 15 different point of views and you build a product, which is 15 different products put together. So it's important to have uh, your point of view. It's important to Condense multiple opinions, not to over-index on a specific uh, point of view, but at the same time, continuously talk to people to get feedback. Um, and I and I've found it very, so over the years. Like no matter what I've done, I've personally benefited a lot from uh, continuously engaging with users. Uh, now, whether that's direct input, whether that's additional information, like how you consume that information. I think varies uh, from product to product, scenario to scenario, but that input is, I think, very valuable.
0: So it's in a way like a continuous um, land and expand track, right? You're, you're c- continuously expanding your your group of fans and giving them more and more, so that they love you more and and uh, like yeah, it's and like it's, a cycle, right?
1: It's that, but also like sometimes they won't love you, and it's important to take that feedback well. Uh, like some of The best feedback I've often received has been from people who are unhappy. And to take that feedback, have the humility to accept it when it's true and act on it. Like some of our, in my past, and I wish uh, and hope that that continues, some of our strongest endorsers have often been people who were once unhappy and saw us like act on their feedback, saw us work with them. And then, when you re win back a user, there's a certain amount of like separate joy to it, like because they, they feel like a co owner in the process. You're not just a consumer. You feel like you influence something, which is genuinely true. So, I think both positive as well as negative feedback is very important.
0: Yeah, I think um, users can really turn into fans if, the, if they see that they influence something, right? At, at, and especially in those. Areas where you have B two B products, complex analytics things. Um, If there's like at a certain point, like a button appearing, which uh, like you know that you're personally responsible for, or or at least influenced, it must be a great feeling, right?
1: No, absolutely. So one of the things we did in uh, one of the areas I worked in, which turned out to be so great for us, we created an email forum where we said engineers in the team will monitor the forum and like they can respond if they want to. Uh, So customers would like, A, customers and users had a great place to just ask questions. You know, there were people who were regularly uh, try to respond to those, but they were also like, the forum was made open to a wider engineering population. And like, someone was like, hey, like, you know, this user is asking for a use case. uh, And like, can I reach out and tell them if they do it this way, that gets solved? And they would, and the gratification on both sides, the user suddenly gets like this, like very first class support, but for the engineer working on it, they're like, wow, like my work, like I I know this particular user is doing something differently or people would respond back saying, you know, you hear great stories that like my my business started doing, you know, 2x better because of this like change you made. And for someone to hear that, it it could be so gratifying that direct validation, direct input. So I'm a big fan of like, Like I've always been a very customer first, customer centric, user first, user centric, like their success is your success. Their feedback is uh, great input. So, yeah. And again, like while there is no one size fits all for me personally, that's been very gratifying.
0: I guess that every of my listener CTOs out there knows this challenge. Traditional content management systems where front-end and back-end are tightly coupled make it difficult to reuse content in different digital channels. The next generation of headless CMS is much more flexible for developers but comes with strong constraints for editors. The goal of Storyblock is building the world's first headless CMS that works for both developers and business users. Storyblock offers a combination of visual editing tools and highly customizable content blocks. This is built on modern headless architecture that gives developers the flexibility to build fast and reliable digital platforms. The big benefit of headless CMSs is that content can be streamed to any platform via API without having to manage the content multiple times. For example, customers use Storyblock for their websites, online stores, apps or send the same content to Twitter, WeChat or to Alexa Skills. Storyblock is now used by over 50,000 developers, product owners and managers and over 80,000 projects in 130 countries. Customers include Adidas, Marley Spoon, Deliveroo and many, many more. If you want to know more, please visit storyblock.com OMR. That's story, B-L-O-K, dot com slash o m r. Like coming from 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 uh, those details to your your recent career change and, and uh, the, the reason why you started at, at Okta and um, why you think that that I am uh, so identity management is 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 a is the future. Um, so <laughs> maybe maybe you can pitch us that. So multiple things. So uh, as I mentioned, like
1: as an engineer, as a leader, what I really enjoy is building, like maybe I can simplify it in three things, building systems at very large scale, which also have tremendous user customer impact. So that combination and this like, can you make complex problems, simple solutions? Those are things I'm very passionate about. And identity has like all like, if you see at the heart of identity, you need systems that are extremely resilient, extremely high throughput. Like who, like everyone is interfacing with increasing amount of software, increasing amount of touch points, the whole like movement towards cloud, towards SaaS is happening. So your touch points are increasing. And you need access to all these things. So you, you want these systems to be extremely resilient. Uh, the need for these systems is like tremendous, growing, and like almost every user in the world in, needs identity, needs secure, trustworthy access to identity in some form or the other. And that is growing. And so from a system point of view, I think these are very high throughput, highly resilient highly critical systems. The customer impact is, uh, the customer need and impact is great. And this whole, like if you look at identity, identity is both so important. And also the complexity can be very, very high if you don't do it right. Uh, I've I've shared this with a bunch of people. For me, I had this moment sometime last year during uh, the whole lockdown pandemic. I saw my 10 year old son like looking at a sheet of white uh, paper constantly. I was like, what's there? And he was like, I have written all my accounts and passwords uh, as I'm doing virtual schooling. Turns out there was a point where he needed to access around 10 different tools, which didn't seamlessly integrate with each other. Like some would be his like school Gmail uh, or school email ID. Some would be his personal email. There were additional softwares they were using, some automatically linked to the school account, some they had to sign up for, each one having their own password constraints, each one having like some had multi-factor, but then like the parent would have to approve something. So you can imagine this is a 10-year-old child who had to physically coordinate across multiple software to just be able to do things beyond that. That's the level of complexity the ecosystem had kind of evolved to. Uh, and I feel it has to get better where things can get much, much simpler. And like Okta's vision and, and mission really resonated, like where we provide really trustworthy, like high scale solutions, but we also work on making it simultaneously secure, but simultaneously also seamless and easy for, I don't think users over time have to choose or should be choosing between trust, security, and complexity and ease of use. I think there's a win-win world. And that really, so uh, both as an engineer and as a consumer, the space really resonated
0: with me. Um, And uh, the school of your son, is it now equipped with Okta or? (laughs) Uh, My my, my son's changed schools. And again, like
1: uh, a lot of it comes down, like it's an ecosystem play. So you have to, you have to use the right identity solutions that, make it possible and make it seamless while keeping it very secure. But then also multiple people have to do that. Like I think with schooling, the challenge often is there are multiple software providers uh, who have each, as I mentioned, so things have gotten better and I hope they keep getting better. Uh and I, I see examples of this. Like I often use children as examples uh, because I think in many ways they look at technology in the purest form like they look at things and say this looks so broken uh like i'll give you another concrete example um there is an entertainment uh without <laughs> naming uh there's an entertainment provider my children like they get that as their reward at the end of the day they're like okay like we've worked hard like we can watch this or like play this something uh they like well, right now they're like okay can you come and log me in but we also want to make sure that they don't use it for too long so we also have to go and then lock them out uh like we don't want to give them uh like add them to you know family accounts or accounts because like once they're like added in they can probably do it all the time in and on so simple problem like this like the way we solve it right now is like once a day like um, my wife or I will go log them in, then like go log them out, do things. Like, won't it be so much simpler if there was a way of like giving them like delegated access for uh, short periods of time? Like if I could say, okay, you know, or I could generate a one-time thing for them, like, oh, okay, you get to use this, do it yourself. But like, you know, know, something happens in an hour and then you have to either re-ask for something. Uh, Again, these are very day to day use cases that we face. Like, I I face, like, again, this is with children. Now, imagine, like, when it comes to workspace, when it comes to consumer products, you have even like the criticality, the use case often becomes uh, even more complex, manifold complexity. So, uh, uh, again, for Okta, like, I felt very excited by, like, hey, we can solve these really complex problems, but hopefully, users get the best of both worlds. They get like a great solution, a secure solution, but also a seamless solution. So that that
0: combination, I think. So you're helping us to get rid of passwords then? I'm <laughs> I, I a big believer in, uh,
1: again, I'm speaking for myself, that uh, I think choice is very important, especially in an area like this, because uh, there's so much innovation happening. And I think uh, the customer deserves to and it's important for them to kind of decide and not just often even at a customer level they might decide on a customer application level like what their preferred mode of interaction is security is appetite for it like there might be you know something which uh, uh, has your personal details or very critical things you probably want multi-levels of authentication to it whereas something like you know you're looking at some aggregated high-level view, you might want a more seamless. So I think giving people choice is important. Passwords, if you look at it, are increasingly looking like a thing of the past. Uh, the Or increasing the classic password of like, you sign up for something, you get like one password that you then continuously use. And you remember like, it is both from a security point of view and the mode of use point of view is starting to show its uh, limitations so like if i look at it from an opta point of view and again i'm i'm still ramping up and learning so much every day we are increasingly providing newer forms of authentication which are both more secure as well as like often easier to use like you now compared to 10 years back now like our access to biometric uh levels of authenticating are so much more. So for the ecosystem to not make use of it and not evolve will be, is non-ideal. So you want to like keep up with the trends, do increasingly more secure and seamless combinations. There are many, many pockets that still use passwords. And uh, it'll be interesting to see when it goes away, but there are, it's starting to look like something of the past and like better and more forms are coming up every few months and like uh, it'll be yeah th- that's where I see trends going
0: yeah I, I hope it will be like much more seamless in 10 years uh, I mean it's like even with things like YubiKey and stuff like that uh, like extra devices um, yeah. I, I don't I don't feel that this like is, is in long term a, a good solution for 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 like general purpose problems at least I would say um <clears throat> What is what is like? I mean, you decided um, for the company and for the topic. What what is really hard about the technology problems that you're facing these days? I mean, you mentioned like the data problems you had at at, at Google at the at, at the early days. Um, are you still onto heavy technical problems now? And what what are the technical problems you're you're facing with Okta? Um, and what 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 are your key challenges that you're facing these days personally?
1: Yeah, so I, I think Okta is a very, very technically rich like identity as a space. Um I, I was mentioning this somewhere else recently. Identity is something that looks deceptively simple sometimes. And people misevaluate that. Like some people are like, and I've had this conversation. I was like, oh, isn't it like you see a form?' You enter an email address and a, a password that gets saved in a database. Like, isn't it that? And then you start like asking a little bit of questions. And you're like, okay, what about you want uh, multi-factor supportive? Like, okay, yeah. That, like, what happens when you uh, forget your password? It's like, okay, like what happens if you're using a desktop machine versus an app? Like, you want to do things that, like I see. Like, what happens with the various forms of compliance and, and like. Now imagine the system side of things like you have like literally billions of users who might be accessing something. So how do you like scale it at that? Like resiliency, like what about like people attacking the system multiple times? So like now when you think of it, it's it's a series of very rich technical problems. So you need a system that is very high throughput, extremely resilient, like state of art, like like basically, your identity system is the entrance to your digital world. Like and if your house door is locked, it doesn't matter how great the house is, you can't enter it. Similarly, if your house door is broken, like your whole house is at risk. So you and and every house needs doors. So the throughput of the system, the resiliency, the security has to be top-notch. Then you add the layer of integrations. Like there are thousands and thousands of applications each you have to integrate you have to integrate seamlessly with them and they're all changing and there are nuances to each one like the, the way they look at users the way they support groups the way like the kind of uh, like authentication they start changing so there's that complexity add to that the device level complexity each device is different platforms are different so and you add that layer it just keeps going on so i think it's a very technically rich problem and so from an engineering point of view i think like almost every branch of computing plays out in this space uh, very nicely and to be able to handle all of this and to the end user provide that seamless experience where they don't have to worry about it where you know a, a company can come and say okay you take care of all these complexities and my my workforce or my consumers can now log in feel that everything is secure and start doing their thing without having to worry about these things. I, I mentioned that side also really excites me. Like how seamless do you make this for users, for developers, for customers, all, all aspects of it. And,
0: and from a technology perspective, you mentioned like um, each of your integrations uh, in a way manages things differently, but there are like a lot of standards um uh, that that have been invented in the last years, right? Like OAUTH and OpenID Connect, um, and 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 others. Does that help you a lot, or do you also shaping those standards?
1: Yeah, I think both. So standards definitely help. I, I would say each integration is uh, necessarily unique, but there's like within these standards, there's enough variation of how much of the standard you follow. Also, each company, like, you know, something simple, like how do you even access, like, how do you sync data? How data is exposed, like different solutions can have different approaches. Some might make it readily available. In some cases, you might have to ping some API or endpoint. Some of these endpoints can be pinged anytime. Some of these endpoints have to be scheduled. Like you kind of do like mass imports. So all all kinds of, so when you do an end-to-end solution, for the customer to not worry about it, like whether they're like, whether it was like standard A or standard B, whether it's like daily import or like real-time import, whether they support like all these things to like kind of shield the customer from it while dealing with it in a combinatorial space, Where If you think of it, when you combine the number of integrations, number of platforms, number of devices, different kinds of users, different kinds of companies, different kinds of applications, each having their own constraints. When you overlay all of this, you can imagine a very, very large combinatorial space. And to be able to deal with that successfully, I think, is uh, both a very challenging problem, but also a very interesting problem.
0: Um, So is it then right that I can use your solution to essentially log into the Wi-Fi at my company uh, log into GitHub, log into like everything. Um, with, I mean, 7,000 integrations is quite quite a lot. You mentioned that before, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's the vision. Uh, like we have like you know 7,000 plus integrations like inbuilt and that number is growing steadily like every single day. Uh, because it's very important. Like the, the software's like, again, going with the analogy of house and doors, there are new and new houses coming up every day. You as a... Person looking for a house, like your needs are changing. Like you might, like today, your needs might be a certain uh, way. And then, like, after a few years, you're like, I I want a very different kind of house. But you still want that, like, like, you want your home to be secure. You want your home, like, I I was telling someone recently that you never want to compromise for the locksmith of your house. Like, would you ever avail the services of a locksmith, no matter what kind of house you have? If someone tells you, you know, this locksmith's not very good. Like, so that's how I look at it. Like the kind of software you use will continuously evolve, but you want to make sure that the way like you use it, you are secure, You your customer experience is as seamless as possible, and it just works for you.
0: Um, like just, just one, 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 one idea that uh, I guess is also like somewhere in your head Um one interesting aspect of, of of being the locksmith of of uh, of the software world um, is, is is SaaS and how companies deal with SaaS these days, right? Um, like there, are, like, I think like one of the major advantages for SaaS companies these days is that um, people just forget about it, um, and companies just forget about uh, who has access and who who hasn't, right? And whenever an employee leaves, you wanna want to also um, get it out of that 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 system uh, so that he no longer has access uh, but generally it would also be nice to like somehow develop a marketplace right um where um you are in a way the gatekeeper you build a marketplace for SaaS, uh where people in the company whenever they want to try i don't know mailchimp or active campaign or google analytics or something they can just try it um like from a like limited catalog of tools um is that and 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 you in a way make sure that um only the licenses that that are really needed are also built is that also like potentially a future vision that's a great
1: idea i have duly noted it and we will follow but you know to your point like obviously i can't comment on like what's the future vision but to make access to, like Opta's vision at a high level is connecting people to technology and tools in a secure way to make companies and people more productive. If you think of it that way, like you want, like the more and more options coming and you want to make it seamless for people to be able to use any of them, uh, but do it with the right, adequate level of security and ease. Uh, so...
0: So oh, thanks a lot. I now want to work at Okta.
1: <laughs> I, I, you would love that, and I, yeah, I wish more and more people start feeling that way. If uh, people hearing this feel that way, that's great.
0: <laughs> so um, you you at the beginning mentioned that you um, had early mentors in your career. So that sounds as if you believe in mentorship. Do do you, do you have mentors these days still? I feel I've been a,
1: I've benefited tremendously from having mentors. Like you know, I'm someone. Uh, a lot of things I learned, like I, I had never managed before. I started managing uh, in Google, and like I hadn't taken like formal training in that. Uh, I hadn't like been a tech lead. I hadn't done certain kinds of work. Like uh, I, I started, as I mentioned, my background was in distributed systems and data. And then over the years, I've done everything from machine learning to uh, front-end work, like platform, ecosystem work, identity now. So I have benefited a lot from people helping me grow, evolve, and at least I would like to think better version of who I was. And I, I can't deny the influence of the the huge number of people who've been very generous with their time advice. Uh, there are people who could have not invested time in me at all. Uh, there are people who could have given up on me the first time I made a mistake, but many of those people spend that time and made me learn things. Even when sometimes like I made mistakes, they would use it as an opportunity to teach. And I, I've been very lucky, uh, to have people like that around me. So I've personally benefited from a lot of great mentors. Like even now, like over the years, I, I always look for people to learn from. That's the other thing I feel, that you can learn something from everyone. So I have like official formal mentors who I, I can go and more readily seek, like, hey, you know, like very specific problems, but there are people you learn from observing. There are people who would say things And that just uh, like to give you a concrete example, uh, when I look back, one of the uh, people who really influenced me uh, is my PhD advisor, uh, advisors, I had two advisors. And there was one particular conversation I had with them, which was not an official mentorship conversation, but they shared some things with me, which like till date, when I look back, like is among the most valuable advice I've received uh, over the years and really plays out a lot in the way I function. And like I keep telling them that you have no idea that one, one discussion we had had such a profound impact on me. And there are so many of these that happen on a regular basis. So I've been very fortunate. I try to do the same. I feel as someone who's benefited from that, I wish I try my level best. I, obviously, people who interact with me, they should say whether it's beneficial for them. But I, I feel we all benefit from the system, and we should all give back to the system.
0: And um, like from your your years as as a CTO and your your whole career, where you saw a lot from front end to back end to data analytics, what 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 do you think are like the two or three most important things you 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 learned you you would pass on to other CTOs out there? I've given this some thought over the years and answered. Like, if I
1: could tell any engineer, any leader, three things, uh, I think the top three I would say is one is when you're building a system, actively think about the next level of scale and evolution. Basically, if you look at a lot of system development, they happen organically. So what ends up happening is your system's being used by K people. And then like K increases by 10%. So you're like, okay, I have to tweak these things and you change it. And then K increases by another 10%. And then someday K has become 5K. And you look at the system, it's a series of like changes that has taken them there. Whereas if you were at K and you were like, hey, if we were to be 5K, what would have to change? You would do some things very differently. So I think a lot of times. We, as technologists, are always in this evolutionary mode. Uh, And sometimes it's important, not always. I mean, it's not like you should all, like, prematurely, if your system's at, like, X, design for 10X. But I think doing that, like, planning for and doing that proactively, that next level of, that next step function of scale, allows you to think of technology, build technology, evolve technology, evolve organizations, uh, in different ways, that's a good exercise to do. So that's one. The second is treating developer productivity as a first-class thing. In a lot of companies, as they grow, like the developer experience often goes down. I've spoken to so many of my friends that, and uh, who are like you know, in so many companies. And I one of the questions I ask them is. Do you see developer productivity scaling linearly? And the answer is almost no. In many cases, it actually starts even dipping. Because uh, like we are all trying to hire great developers and to bring them in and to make them feel like they are not being able to perform at their best. So treat that as a first-class thing, not as an afterthought. Like, uh, Our goal should be how do we create a developer experience within our pockets and even externally where it's just delightful to like you want someone to feel like ah oh, I have an idea let me try this out as opposed to ah oh, I have an idea and I have to oh, idle oh, it's gonna take this I have to do this like that's not the experience you want people to uh, face so that's been like I have really benefited from being able to think of that over the years and being around people who often think of it in first class so that's the second thing treat your developer experience as a first class thing and the third is Scale your excellence so there are things every team, every company does well or does very very well. Always think about how can you scale that, how can you do that same thing with maybe ten percent less effort, twenty percent less effort? This will automatically lead to things like automation, things like tooling. but today's excellence becomes tomorrow's expectation, and as you're growing if you have to linearly grow your excellence it will not be sustainable after a point so like what you do very well you have to figure out how to do that equally well or better in a far easier fashion so you can then keep doing that and start doing it so those three things Uh, think about scale at the next level treat developer uh, uh, productivity and experience as a first class entity and Scale your
0: excellence thanks a lot that was uh, yeah um, i could i could feel that you 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 thought about it for a while <laughs> in your in your career so um then i still have a little surprise for you so um a guy called sergey um actually gave me access to an unreleased version of the early google analytics stack um like uh, shortly after after urchin was was acquired um and it was due to release, but it, it wasn't released back then. And it came with like a, a shiny Easter egg in the date picker, um, which lets you travel in time. And um, we can now like, spin it up. And um, I, I just like select the year two thousand and six when you started off as a normal engineer as Google at Google. And um, we can now observe your, yourself for a while. You're, you're obviously crunching a lot of data there and so on. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young Shagnik ears. What, what would it be?
1: Uh, I think two things. One is the, the first thing I mentioned. Uh, think about scale at the next level. Like as someone who's gone through massive scaling exercises, I, I think it took me a few years to realize that whatever you think is big right now will be small in a few years. And so like a lot of the things I was mentioning about deprecation or next level of scale, like we've all gone through that exercise. We're like, ah, now I'm writing this system. This solves all the problems. And now like this is it. And then like three years later, you're like, oh, that system has so many things that should change. Uh, And thinking ahead, a few years ahead, a few steps ahead, really made me a better engineer and technologist over the years. Because you just start thinking, like, once you see a few of your assumptions, which were already optimistic in your mind, seem like, like, you're like, oh, this will grow from like X users to 10X users. And you're like, that that's huge. And then one day you realize like, you know, really like 100X users is a very different thing from 10X users. You think of systems very differently. So Uh, Again, you don't want to prematurely optimize, but to have that thinking allows you to do things differently. And I I realized that after a few years, and I wish like day one Shagnik knew that and could think about it in those terms. That's one. The other is more of a personal thing is uh, like make work fun. And that's something like I've, once that realization came, And it actually came from one of my early mentors. It's like, it's important to enjoy what you do. You want to wake up in the morning and say like, ah, like today is going to be a fun day and I'm going to learn a bunch and we're going to do some good things. Uh, If you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. So
0: make sure, make work fun. Yeah, that's very very important for your personal motivation right um there's like a very well known um motivational movie i don't know if you know that like a short film uh, it's called fish i think it's, it's about like people uh selling fish on a fish market and they are just like constantly celebrating that thing and throwing uh, fish around and so on it's it's <laughs> yeah you can really feel Hello. it if you if you if you see that um and uh, i i can just agree that um this is like very very important um sometimes like i personally i enjoy work a lot um, and sometimes that leads to people thinking okay your work is just fun <laughs> so <laughs> but it's it's also not i mean you you also yeah. don't, don't do it for fun only but um yeah that's yeah, if uh, you can, if you can do really difficult things but while having fun like that
1: that combination like the you both enjoy it and it's very gratifying so th- that combination
0: uh, Yeah. So uh, thanks, uh, Shagnik. I enjoyed the podcast a lot um, and uh, I'm already looking forward to release it very soon. Um, uh, Thanks for for being here and really enjoyed talking to you. Um, You have very good ideas and and a very good mindset. So uh, thanks a lot. Uh, Thanks so much,
1: Tobias. Like, I, I really enjoyed it too. And like, thank you for having me. Like, it was a lot of fun.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Have a great one. Bye.